I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. In 1983, approximately 8,000 men from the Barzani tribe were rounded up and executed in the desert in southern Iraq. Uh, This massacre was a set of larger genocidal campaigns led by Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party, and it remains, unfortunately, uh, a cornerstone of Kurdish identity to this day. And the bodies of these men are still being recovered, and there may be no individual more qualified to speak on their recovery than Dr. Muhammad Hassan. Beginning in the early 90s, Dr. Hassan began looking for the bodies of the Barzan men at great personal risk, and he went on to present evidence of genocide during the trial of Saddam Hussein in 2005. Along with his work on recovering these men, he's gone on to work as a Minister of Extra-Regional Affairs and working with the federal Iraqi government after the war. Uh, he was the Minister of Human Rights for the KRG as well, and he's become a prominent figure in academia concerning diplomacy and human rights. Uh, he's taught at both the University of Peace in Costa Rica and as a visiting uh, senior research fellow at King's College of London. Uh, also, in the 90s, he served as a legal advisor in post-apartheid uh, South Africa, and we, we talk about that as well. Uh, but all in all, he's one of the most important people to come out of this field, uh, the field of human rights studies, uh, in the last 30 years. And I really could go on and on listing his accomplishments, but I'm just going to let him do the talking uh, from here on out. Uh, so with all that said, here's our conversation. Dr. Hassan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I think it's best for us, before we get into the own role that you play with the recovery of of the bodies uh, from the Anfal, to talk about the Barzan Anfal and its history in general. Could you give me sort of a layout of the early years of Saddam's genocide against the Kurds and Barzan specifically? I think Barzani genocide, it was the first genocide in Iraq in that scale. Because uh, and it was another stage in Iraq, uh, how Saddam was dealing with, with Kurds before he was face-to-face a contact or face-to-face war or assassination of certain personnel in Kurdish leadership or in Kurdish society. But with Barzani, it moved from the large-scale killing from individual killing to mass graves, for example. It happens in 1983 when Saddam sends uh, during Iraq-Iran war. It gets to the level that he was in Hajj Amran. They felt with Iran he wanted to take revenge against Barzani. And at the same time, he had four concentrated camps in Kurdistan, in Diana, in uh, Khushtapa, and Harir, and in Harulair, they captured all the male. This is very unique genocide in the old. He captured 8,000 Barzanis, male. He took them all the way from here to Baghdad, from Baghdad to Samawa, Governorate to Mathanna, to Negra Salman area, and after that, it finished. We were all uh, searching for these bodies. What happened to this uh, issue? Through documents, you find out it is uh, the crimes occurred, the killings has been done, and because Saddam himself, he broadcast after their capture that these people, they've been to, sent to jail. And my role was uh, a way to, to find the road to hell. How this road was set, uh, what Saddam means by his hell, and where is Saddam's hell? 
And through my work, we were searching through documents, talking to people, talking to Iraqi ex-officers, Iraqi intelligence. Until 2003, we, I went to desert all the time, and we find out some signs of graves. We started to, exactly to, uh, to, to work in the grave, mass graves, until we find we managed to bring the first 593 bodies back to Kurdistan. I think it was the first time in, in Kurdish history that uh, Kurds can manage to bring their bodies back from, from mass graves. And you mentioned uh, that it was men only who were killed uh, during this Anfal. Could you explain the significance of that? Look, uh, I have the paper investigating why they did that one, really. Uh, for a man, male-dominated society, man means a lot. Really, many Kurdistan. Kurdistan is not West, it's not Paris, it's not DC, it's not Virginia, it's not London. Men's here means a lot for the family. He's the source of income, he's the source of work, he's the source of controlling the family, he's the source of everything in the family. That's once they have social reason for it, in order to, to destroy the structure of this tribe. Second, to show to the other tribes that this is your leadership, this is the strongest tribes you have, this is your uh, image, I'm going to destroy it, then no one can dare to constance against us tribal side of it. Political size, uh, reason it was Barzani, they were always leading uh, the leadership of Kurdish national movements, all from the early beginning of 20th century until today. They were always leading uh, the Kurdish nationalist Kurdish revolutions against Ottoman, against uh, Iraqis, against British occupation. Uh, even until today, they are leading the, the countries how to protect the image and the security of Kurds and Kurdistan. Uh, this is another reason. And financially, they want to let these tribe down, to let their women or their females to go down to the streets because before in our Kurdish Kurd society, it was too hard for a female to work. And during 80s, it, it, it was one of the plan to some sort of humiliation. This is why I think we should be very proud of Barzani's females who managed to grow up their sons and their kids and or their daughters to, to, to manage the society and to leave and struggle, to struggle against all these challenges, social challenge, economic challenge, political challenges, uh, all these things, and they survive until 1991 to rebuild the society again. I think that was all these reasons or factors behind that genocide. And you begin actually collecting documents in 1991. Uh, could you take me through you collecting documents in the early 90s and then later on during uh, uh, the war in Iraq, coming back and continuing to collect more documents after Look, the fall we of had two, dif two, 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 two stages of collecting document mm -hmm. in our history. After 1991, when people started to do uprising against the regime, uh, we managed to to go to everywhere, sometime in the wrong way, sometime in the right way. In the wrong way, we destroyed a lot of uh, uh, public offices. This is normal in the Middle East, uh, really, and mainly in Iraq. Then we started to go to Iraqi intelligent offices to collect documents. Well, documents we, which we collected were just information about people writing against each other. We managed to know some 
part of the structure of the regime and mentality of the regime, how they are working against us and how they are managing the country at that time. In 2003, I had some backgrounds, and before I was working against the regime as well. Uh, 9th of April, I imagine, 9th of April 2004, the regime, uh, it was the fall of Baghdad. 11th of April, I was in Baghdad. Two days. I went to, I remember I went to my aunt's house in Baghdad. They didn't open the door for me. They were scared because they, because they were, you know, they know I'm against the regime. And they're scared to find out uh, it might be I'm going to create a problem because the regime is still in power. And I've told them, don't worry, Saddam sends gun, but that's been fooled now. We started to collect tons and tons of documents. I managed to collect tons and tons and tons of documents, bringing them to Green Zone at that time and searching for what's where we can find something linked to Kurdistan. One of my friends, he, he advised me, he told me that, uh, Mohammed, I know what we are looking for. And he was working in Baghdad at that time. In a state of working from one to two thousand, no. Go and started to look, to search from the end. I told him how I can do that. He told me, go to the Ministry of uh, Finance and, and their archives. You are going to find out the names of all, of all the people who have been executed or hanged or amplified through this office. I told him why. He said that by Iraqi law, anyone who's been hanged or killed, they confiscated all his lands and property. They are sending letters to the Ministry of Finance. Go and collect there. I bought two big photocopy machines, and I went to the Ministry of uh, Finance. I told them, okay, copy everything for me. I gave to pay you money. Work extra for me here. Or I was threatening them at some stage. If you're not going to do that, I can be totally... Not going to protect and I'm going to kill you, by the way. Really, because this is our property. Never touch it. Mm-hmm. I managed to collect tons of tons of documents. And from that document, we started to classify something about the Hawk, something about Erbil, something about Slemania, something about Barzani, something about Anfal, something about intelligence, something about people who are working for them outside Iraq, really. But my targets in, in documents, I have to make it clear, for history is not to take revenge. My target was not revenge, really. My target was finding the truth. And uh, because we, at that stage, we were thinking to make an end of the story. Let us start new Iraq. Let us start new society. Let us start from zero again. We cannot forget, but we are ready to forgive. Moving from that idea of bringing justice, but not in a sense of revenge, but in a sense of closure, can you tell me the role that you played in the uh, trial against Saddam after you collected these documents? Really, I was the only uh, international genocide expert and the only, I think, the, the main forensic investigator at the court. And uh, I find out it is when I was listening to the perpetrators, it was too hard to imagine that your country has been ruled more than 30 years by this bunch of killers, really. And they were not ready to to forgive at all. Mm-hmm. And they were proud of all what they've done against their own people, many Kurds. 
I remember one interview sitting down face to face with Saddam Hussein and Ali Hassan Majid uh, regarding Barzani's. Uh, they will say, they've said that if history repeats itself again, we are going to do the same. Before we started this interview, uh, we were discussing the Nuremberg trials and the phenomenon of officials in the Nazi party expressing remorse or explaining that they were just following orders. And you brought up that the Ba'athists didn't have that same reaction. And I'm, I'm curious why you think that was. No, there was there a was sense of pride for two reasons, I think. Uh, Ba'athists at the party, uh, they build their characters. They are not... Uh, they are believers, unfortunately. They are believers of what they were doing. And the other reason was Saddam Hussein's present at the court. So he was present at, at the court. Imagine in Nuremberg, if, if Hitler was in, inside the hall, totally no one can blaming each other for what they have done. Mm-hmm. But And the cultural is Western culture and Eastern culture is different also. Uh, in East, Melian, in this part of the world, when they felt and they do that, they were thinking that, okay, it's a great chance for us to, we are loser, loser. We have gone, we have gone, nothing left. Let us create something for our history. And today, by the way, some people are proud of what they have done until today, unfortunately, because after 2003, the new Iraqi government, they never managed to do something better than what has been done during Saddam Hussein's time. This is also another bad, side effect. No, but they were proud of they were done and they were not, not ready to, to at least to to for any sort of pardon or, or, to, or to be sorry for what they have done. Is it difficult for you personally to reconcile with someone like that? Really it's too hard. Seriously. It, it is, uh, my work is affected, it's affected me psychologically. Believe me. Uh, because it is not, it's not easy to find to find buddies, and uh, for no reason, not one single, single incident or not single case, thousands and thousands of cases for nothing. These people has been killed. Their only crime of occurs. It affects you sometimes. It affects you to see all that. Uh, why we're so cheap? Our life was so cheap at that time. What we have done. The only for one reason that you occurred is your nationality a crime for you. But I, then after that, I started to investigate a lot and to do a lot of research about Rwanda, Armenia, Holocaust, uh, uh, Colombia, uh, South Africa, to find out if there is something similar. I find out it's in any society has been classified by religions or by uh, tribes or by nationalities. If you don't have a real democratic regime, it's easy to end up in a genocide case. But in Iraq and mainly with Barzani case, it's totally unique. You cannot find any other case like Barzani case in all histories of genocide all over the world. This is the first case of genocide for 8,000 only male to be captured and killed, and no one aware of their case until 23 years later. 23 years later, 
because the government at that time or the regime at that time, they had a clear policy of denial. Clear policy. They have documents. They were telling no one aware of this except the state of the country. Don't talk about this topic at all. And no one were aware of it where it that until two thousand until two thousand three, two thousand four, which means twenty three years later. This is unique case, seriously, of genocide in the history of genocide all over the world. I want to talk about your actual excavation of the bodies because uh, during uh, 2003 onwards, there's a presence of Al-Qaeda. And so the excavation, the actual recovery of these bodies is not in and of itself a safe process at all. And so I was wondering if you could walk me through sort of the risks that you took. It was too risky, really. It was really risky. Sometimes we're working undercover. I was uh, acting as a journal- journalist. Searching for truth, not as an, a guy with. Uh, and my message for my message always for the people that I'm not uh, coming. I'm not a police coming to capture people here in, in the desert or in the south. I'm coming to find the truth, and searching for my body, nothing else. It was too risky. And don't forget, in 1993, 2003, 2005, Qaeda was with and we were searching for the crime of Bathurst. It was too risky. One of my bodyguards has been killed, and after we finished our investigation, the governorate of Samawa, the area which we're working, has been killed by Qaeda as well. Muhammad Al-Hassani, poor guy, he was very helpful for us. And it was too risky, really, but we were following some clever, intelligent move. And I had some background, military background as well really because I worked in 1991 as a British Royal Marine during safe haven operation as a British Royal Marine with 40 commando brigade. At least we had some sort of intelligence, security, some military background to protect ourselves. And my procedure in that, always keep low profile. When you have big convoy, you are making yourself a big... uh, target, identical target for your enemy. We were careful in that, and thanks God, we managed to, to, to succeed. Can you speak about when you did finally recover uh, these, these bodies, uh, what kind of closure it brought to the people in the Barzan area? It was very helpful for Barzan area because really this, uh, this genocide created what they left behind it, a lot of social, economical, family, social relations, uh, movement, a lot, a lot behind it. People were waiting for so long. I think when we get the bodies back, people, there's some sort of relaxation. We make an end for a very bad and sad history or story. People, they, for example, imagine uh, females waiting for 23 years for her husband to be back. Believe me, I remember one very important incident for me. I was I met an, a lady in, in Barzan after we returned the body back. She told me that, Muhammad, I've been for 23 years, every day and every night, every lunch, I'm waiting for my husband to be back. And even at night, I'm waiting for him to be on, his, on my bed. Okay? Now, despite of everything, thanks to God, at least you brought a bone for me 
to feel that my husband has been passed away and that I can sleep without waiting. Okay, it might be I can find him in my dream, but not waiting that he's going to knock the door and he's going to enter my room at any any minute. Such sort of feeling for them, it was it was good, I think, despite of that. But sometimes you bring bad news and bad answer is bad, much much better waiting for no answers. I actually want to talk now about your own role as Minister of Extra-Regional Affairs at that time, and your own background because you worked as a legal uh, 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 assistant in South Africa, actually. And so coming back to the theme of reconciliation and, and closure, how were you able to navigate the politics of sectarian Iraq after the fall of Saddam? Really, it was I was not expecting the situation is going to be so tough and so hard because mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of bad and hard areas in all over the world. I worked in South Africa during the hardest time, but uh, there was more role of leadership. Here in Iraq, it was less. And I find out Iraq is with the most fragmented society or the country in the area. Really, it's just a unique case uh, unfortunately, you can say that Iraq without Iraqis. You have Kurds, you have Arabs, you have Turkmens, you have Chaldeans, you have Assyrians, you have Sunnis, you have Shias. You have a lot of much more ex- uh, sectarian uh, roles here. Uh, it was not easy. When we are talking about reconciliation in Iraq and in Melin Kirkuk, it was too hard. Uh, for many reasons, cultural-wise, it is um, we have very poor culture of reconciliation in Islamic world. Mm-hmm. This is fact. In Islamic world, they talk about reconciliation a lot, but it's not true. In Islamic way, when you talk about reconciliation, you have to live the way I want you to live. With Christians, with Jews, with anyone else, this is fact. They don't acknowledge it. The other things, the role of pride that we are. We have to take revenge. Third, the love of blood also is another issue here. People there, I point out in South Africa, it's very easy. A killer can enter the house and tell him, forgive me, and they can cry for 10 minutes, then they shake hands, and they invite it for lunch, and next day they can live together. And third, and, and f- fourth, which is very fact, is also, the weather, it affects the revenge here. Seriously, it's hot weather. Mm-hmm. I find that it's affecting the, the, love of brand, the, the love of blood and revenge in this part of the world. It's very, it's very hard. This is why we are the curse. We, it is a, another unique case. The victim can ask for, uni, for reconciliation before the perpetrators. In South Africa, the perpetrators ask for Reconciliation, please let us start it. Then Mandela follow it. In Kurdistan, Masoud Barzani was the first one in 1991. He said that let us, for he came out the idea of general pardon, general forgiveness for all, general amnesty. And then he asked for reconciliation in the society. Also, this topic, I think, for the researcher and for the Western people, they should know about it. This is, uh, I think, 
reconciliation started from Kurdistan before South Africa. Can we speak a little bit about Kirkuk, which you mentioned briefly, uh, because tensions have now risen since 2017 between federal Iraq and uh, uh, KRI. And I want to ask you what you think the future of these uh, sectarian divides uh, will do to that city and in general in Iraq. Look, Kirkuk is mini Iraq, Mm -hmm. really. Uh, They have Kurds, Arab, Turkmen, Assyrian, Armenian, they have oil. Uh, these people, they were living together for a while. This area is really Kurdistani area, but part of Iraq. Saddam Hussein, after 1970, they had some procedures to change the demography of the area. And he succeeded on that. And you have data and documents, a lot of that. Through the Constitution, we agreed that this area should be normalized. The side effect of Saddam Hussein's policies or decrees should be fixed, normalized. Then we can come out with the idea of uh, census, who are the original people of Kirkuk, not the outcomer. New Kurdish outcomer, they are not eligible to, to take parole of, of the referendum. And even new Arabs come, Arabs who are not originally from there, or Turkmen's, they don't have role to do it. And then we can go for a referendum. This area is part of KRG, and KRG part of Iraq. Oh, this area, there's going to be just part of Iraq, not under control of. And at the same time, we came out with the idea of power sharing in area, which is in a city, which they have 10% Kurds and 5% Arabs, which for at least 20 years, the same role, the same role, the same power sharing should apply to the area which have 10% Arab and 90% Kurds, or Turkmen's like that one. They delay it because they don't believe on fixing the problem. And after 2017, it becomes more complicated, really, and today, but I think without sorting sorting out the issue of Kirkuk or settling out the issue of Kirkuk, there will be no peace in Iraq and there will be no implementer of constitution. Otherwise, forget it, which means you have ready card for another conflict inside Iraq without sorting out the issue of Kirkuk. For me, I was thinking of sorting out the Kirkuk issue through Article 140, through legal framework, for the safety and stability of all Iraqis, not just Kurds, really. But they were thinking of uh, playing with time, leave postponing things to a further stage to get it more complicated until 2017 happens. Even now, I'm thinking if we are not going to implement Article 144 Kirkuk, we are paving the way for another conflict in the area. And as we speak now, uh, two days from now, and it will be about a month ago when this episode is released, but um, you will be taking part in a ceremony uh, that recognizes the excavation of a number of more bodies from the Barzan area. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to me about that a little bit? I think on Sunday we'll have 160 bodies back from, from the same area. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saturday, Sunday, we are going to rebury them at the same place in Barzan. This is another stage. Uh, my idea, we have to continue to bring all the bodies back from the south, from the mass graves. All, not just Barzani's, and Fals and everybody's. I think it's not, it's not fair 
to leave your body's back. And if you are not uh, valuing your dead body, it's not possible to, to value your alive son and daughters today. Because by their sacrifice we reach today, we have to appreciate them and bring them back. And it's going to help our reconciliation process as well in Iraq. At least we can make an end of this story. A guy whose Bob, whose dad's been missing for 30 years now, I, I cannot go and talk to him about Iraq and still he don't know where his dad's been buried or been killed. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to help our reconciliation inside the society again. Generally, I, I wrap these interviews up by sort of asking a generic question about what needs to happen for the future. But with you, I actually want to ask sort of a, the inverse of that question. Why, why is recognizing this particular aspect of the past, this genocide, so important for Kurdish identity in your own view? I think it's, it's a genocide. Most of the people who were there, mobilization public mobilization based on nationality they needs to recognize their genocide, their genocides. And uh, this is not something happens and finished. We are living with it daily, really, because we are scared the same thing can happen tomorrow. And it happens in 2000. In 2007, by the way, we were celebrating the anniversary of, of Halabja. I had the speech, I said that the same Genocide will happen again, the Kurds against in Sinjar, and it happens in 2014, really. Even today, if we are not implementing constitution, living together, and memorizing these things, it might be another genocide can happen against Kurds. Who say not? Why not? Because the machine who produced genocide exists. They are there. We take Saddam Hussein's and his gangs to the court, but we never talk his mentality. And it became worse after 2003, by the way, than the marriage between Islamists and Ba'athists, the outcome with Qaeda and ISIS, which is worse than Ba'athists. Like you have a chocolate covered by poison. It's going to become a more dangerous. Chocolate is, is bad for the guy who's diabetes. But if you cover it with poison, it's going to be disaster for all. It happens like that now. This is why I think with, if we are not memorizing it, if we are not, uh, if we are going to forget it, the same thing can happen again. Well, Dr. Hassan, thank you so much thank for your you time. Thank you so much, too. Thank you. I'd really like to thank Dr. Hassan for stopping by to talk, and thanks to you for listening. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network, and you can check us out at kurdistanin.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Inside Kurdistan.